Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, author of Visualizing Happiness in Every Area of Your Life and host of this podcast, Incredible Life Creator. And today I have Mr. Brandon Garrett on with me today. Hey, Brandon. Hello, hello, hello. And um, Brandon has been on our podcast in the past and he was doing something different than what he's doing now. And so <laughs> I love highlighting people's journeys because you know, people don't just arrive at where they're at. There's a lot of changes and pivoting and a journey to where we end up. And so um, now Brandon is um, acquiring businesses and he was doing something very different before. So just so everybody can know him in case you don't, I'm going to go ahead and just read a short bio. So Brandon Garrett believes in building strong relationships that lead to profitable growth in highly competitive markets. He has consistently grown millions of dollars in revenue in multiple industries through improving any team's performance. Brandon's family history is in the mountains and foothills of Tennessee. Brandon believes deeply in the power and spirit of private companies and entrepreneurs as the backbone of our great country. He is working to build a portfolio between $150 and $250 million of assets under management of well-established small and mid-sized businesses with great reputations and brands in the manufacturing, logistics, and construction home services industry in America's heartland to generate more growth and opportunities for upcoming generations. Ultimately, this is designed to help fund Brandon's bigger vision of replicating what Williamson County Schools have created with their Entrepreneurship and Innovation Center in as many school districts in the U.S. as possible, starting in America's heartland. So, Brandon, just so people get to know you, why don't you start out just, you don't have to do, you do have another podcast with your whole story, but right. start out and give us snippets of, you know, where you started out and how you got to be doing what you're doing now and how you, you know, pivoted and changed to do this new mission. Yeah. So, cause you're right. It's been, oh gosh, it's been a while since I was on the podcast and yeah, things definitely have changed. And, and I like that you highlight like, it's like what we see on social media or what you see online or the, the sound bite that you get when you go to a networking event, like that's, that's just the highlight wheel that like, like that's the peak, right? There's an entire story behind everybody's journey, including my own. So like where I'm at now is, you know, it's, it's 20 years of work. This is not just like a sudden, like two or three or even five year thing. Like I spent two decades in corporate America in various levels of, of senior leadership at fortune 500 to 200 companies you know, went through the crash of 08, ended up getting laid off, was homeless a little bit, uh, a little bit of time after that, um, and had to kind of reinvent myself, change careers and industries, and then eventually got tired of doing what I affectionately refer to as the impossible for the ungrateful. Um, so I, I left corporate and jumped off the cliff and started building a plane on the way down. I uh, started my first company as an insurance brokerage um, right before the pandemic. Uh, did very well with that. I went from, you know, startup to 23 business accounts in, in about the first six months or so as we were specializing in voluntary benefits and group health benefits for small businesses. Uh, but turn the corner that at the end of that first year, COVID comes around and, you know, almost all those businesses were deemed uh, non-essential. And when people aren't working, they don't have money to pay their insurance benefits. So I pretty well, that this business pretty well disappeared overnight. Um, so I've, you know, built one, lost one. I still maintain that entity. It's very, very small now. Um, it's a business line, you know, an industry I'll get back into because it's not going anywhere. But uh, through that, I started investing in myself. And that's probably the biggest thing I would encourage everyone to do is make sure you are, you know, investing in yourself. Don't go drop that, you know, that $1,500 on, on an iPhone or $1,000 on a TV or even I, as much as I will probably get some some flack for saying it twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year on college. Like really really focus on investing in yourself in a way that's going to grow your skill set and allow you to add value out there because that's what it comes down to. Um, so through that process, I got linked up with another with another group, uh, another startup company, um, a sales as a service company, which is how you and I actually met. Um, mm -hmm. Helped grow that to you know eight figures in about two years. Got to work with really cool people, um, and then along the way, kind of built some additional skills and stuff that allowed me to make a pivot over the last year or so um, into acquisitions full time, which is what I'm doing now. Beautiful. So, what attracted you to acquisitions? Well, I, it was something I knew I always wanted to get into just because I, that's where that's where the big money's at. And when I say that, it's not because it's about the money, but at the end of the day, we have to break free of this concept of this this 
mental handcuffs that are put on us at a young age that, hey, go to school, go to college, get a good job, work nine to five, work 40 years, you know, retire, have your 401k and, and live happily ever after. Like that's that's a terrible proposition. That's not always really what works out. So, you know, being in the acquisition space allows you to to start acquiring some cash producing assets because of my business background. That's why I chose acquisitions versus like real estate or, or, or you know, multifamily or, you know, commercial development, anything like that. Um, I may get into that eventually, but that just, you know, this is a natural transition for me um, because I, I knew I needed to have something that was going to generate enough cash that would allow me to go out and kind of do the things that I'm called to do while, I, while I've got, you know, another 40 years or so. Uh, because at the end of the day, anything good that anyone does comes from funding. I mean, Mother Teresa, everybody, everybody knows Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was funded and very well funded at that. So, you know, yes, you can donate your time and all that stuff's very, very important. But when you want to have, you know, a, a bigger and bigger impact, the way the world is set up, that requires some monetary exchange. So that's why, you know, I finally was able to make the leap into acquisition so I can continue, you know, on, on that path. And you kind of highlighted that in the intro of, you know, reinvesting in America's youth, because we've gotten away from that here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So right now, acquisitions is kind of a popular thing. I mean, <laughs> I was telling you, I listened to Cody Sanchez on YouTube and she's talking about buying these, you know, little business for assets. But, you mm -hmm. know, not everybody has the skill, not only just to acquire them, because there's a skill to that, but you have to be able to um, either have operators or yourself know how to make a business profitable because you could buy a business. And I see this in my healthcare profession, mm -hmm. you know, new doctors buy a business of a, a doctor that's been there for 40 years and all the patients leave and they they're stuck with a <laughs> shell of a business. So, I mean, there's certain skills. So what would you tell people who are interested in this? What skills do they need? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. There's there's a variety of skills you need to be mindful of, separate of just going out and, and acquiring the business itself, having that understanding, which is not a solo enterprise. Like I will not misrepresent that at all. I am not absolutely not doing this on my own. Like I've got a team of amazing people um, around me that I've been able to network with over the years. And, you know, a, a bulk, bulk of them came from making an investment into, you know, a high level mastermind. Um, so, cause it's not a solo enterprise. Like I, I, I don't know enough about finances. I don't know enough about legal. I don't like, there's a whole, there's a whole slew of things in there, but ultimately, even if you go out and get that team, you're, you're absolutely right. Kimberly, like you have to know how to, how to run and manage and grow a business independent of that. If you don't, you're going to end up buying yourself a job. Now that's not to say that that's not necessarily a, a, a bad fit for some people, but if you, if you're wanting to not get yourself back into the very thing that you're in now you have to you have to acquire a business that either you're able to grow to that point knowing that hey i'm, I'm going to be in the trenches for a little while and then i'm going to be able to step away or uh you just have to get one that's already built up because you don't want to be the dancing berry or what i call the chief everything officer uh, there's a lot of those out there you know a franchise is a perfect example you know it, you can get into a franchise relatively cheap and i'm not speaking ill of franchises it's just not a model that i would like to invest in um, you know, but the, a lot of them out there, you're really, you know, you're really buying yourself a, a job. Uh, it's just a, a very high paying job, and you've got a a business in a box, so to speak. Which, if you're not comfortable getting into a, a full blown business where you got to figure out on your own, franchises can be a great way to kind of cut your teeth because not everyone has, you know, a background of being in corporate and having P and L responsibility for you know nine figures and seven hundred employees and like all this other stuff that I've I've spent decades doing. Um, that that's the first thing I, you you've got to establish is like, hey, do do I have the skill set and do I have the necessary resources and people around me? If I go acquire this thing, I'm going to be able to maintain it and grow it because once you do that, um, you're taking on a, a pretty significant responsibility, and that's the thing that doesn't get talked about in M and A circles even very much. Um, it's one thing if you're the solopreneur, you're the dancing bear, you're the chief everything officer, and it's just you and you have to get out there and grind to put food on your table. That's one thing. But if you're acquiring a functioning business, the game changes completely because now you're going to have 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 employees whose families depend on their their spouse, their mom, their dad to to have that income coming in to put food on their table, to put a roof over their head. Um, so the, the scope of responsibility becomes significantly larger the moment you acquire that business. And it's not something you can just like 
hey, okay, uh, I own it now. Go have fun. Like you still, you still have to have some some involvement to make sure the business stays on track. One to protect your investment, but two to protect the people and the employees you got because that's really the the biggest part of the investment that you're making is that commitment to them and the in those families because uh, small businesses are the backbone of the economy. I mean, uh, as defined by the the Small Business Administration, like. 90 plus percent of all businesses and employees fall in a 90 in a in a small business category like that is the large literally the largest portion of the economy um so it's it's a very important responsibility that people don't really talk about much yeah and and speaking of employees um so being that you don't want to go in and be an operator these businesses have to have an operator there either the old owner for a year or two or whoever their operator is and then like you said the employees so when you go into a company you know of course everybody's worried about are they going to lose their job when this new company comes in Mm -hmm. so how do you get their trust how do you show give them like feel help them feel secure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and you're right because there's a lot of there's a, a lot of that that goes on, especially uh, if private equity gets involved. There's that the that that legend or myth, and it's not it's it's not unwarranted in the private equity space where they go in and, and chop these businesses up and sell them off for parts, like a almost like a stolen car. And again, I'm not, not necessarily speaking bad of private equity, but that's that's the reality and the feeling that a lot of people have when they hear all oh, this outside investor is going to come and come in and, and buy the company, right? So what what I do really hinges on building those relationships as early on as possible. Now, each deal is different. So you may or may not get an interaction with the employees during what's called due diligence after you've kind of had some conversations with the owner. You may have a letter of intent signed and all that because every owner is going to want to handle that situation delicately. But how I communicate that when I start working with the owners is, is, hey, like, you know, when when is when is appropriate for you? You know, I would love the opportunity for all of us to to kind of have a meeting, sit down, come together, do some introductions and, and take care of uh, any questions that they may have. And ultimately kind of share with them the vision that you, you you highlighted, like, hey, why why I'm here? This is, you know, this is why I'm acquiring the company. You know, you guys are and give them that assurance like, hey, mm-hmm. no one, you know, I'm, I, we may do things different, but, you know, everyone's safe. No one's going to lose their job. And, and ultimately, my role here is is to make your guys' jobs either easier. Like I'm, we're going to be having conversations, understanding what problems you're facing and how I, uh, in my role can, can remove that obstacle that's making your job more difficult. So you can come in and, and, and be efficient, get the things done that you need to do and enjoy your time while you're here. Cause there's having been a frontline employee for the first part of my career in, in manufacturing, no less, like there's nothing more frustrating than having to come into work every single day and run a piece of equipment that yeah, it works, but like it barely works. And like, it's really tough for me to hit my productivity numbers because I have to argue with the machine eight, 10 hours a day. Like that is so demoralizing, so frustrating. Um, so I go in and give them that assurance. Like, hey, we're going to talk about things. Like we're going to make some decisions and we're going to grow this thing and give you guys more opportunity and make your life easier uh, and get them bought into that. Because at the end of the day, like I said, that's that's truly what I believe that that small businesses are the backbone of, of America. They are the backbone of any economy, whether it's here in the United States or elsewhere. Um, and there are some businesses that um, have been mistreated by larger entities that that they get bought up by. So I'm kind of like putting on my my superhero cape, so to speak, and, you know, being Batman or whatever, go out and kind of pr- protect Gotham from, you know, from, from the jokers of private equity and, and big investors, because uh, we need we need to bring that kind of stuff and that attention and that focus back um, because we are now seeing the consequences of those short sighted decisions um, here here in the U.S. with with how the economy is is functioning um, you know with supply chain issues that was exposed you know globally during the pandemic and things like that so you know that's I I just go in and lay it all out there I can completely transparent with everyone and say hey this is this is the mission we're on let's go together and stick my hand out and and go on down the road with them. Cool. So when you're acquiring a business and you've, you've bought it now, um, this might vary too, but how long does it take you to really get things moving smoothly and getting things going where, Mm -hmm. you know, the operators, the, the management there can be handling everything 
and you're just checking your numbers, you're checking in, what does it take to get to that point? Uh, and you're right. It, it, there is a lot of variability there. It depends on how put together things are to begin with. Um, you know, typically, even if something's very, very systemized, very process driven, which is what investors like to see, like we want to see a repeatable process. That's why franchise models are so good. That's why McDonald's is so successful or you, you pick another one because they know that, hey, we've got everything dialed in. Like you follow this instructions, we're going to get a consistent product and we know we're going to we're going to get, you know, three million dollars out of this particular store run by a bunch of high school students and a couple of high school, you know, high school or college grads. Like that's that's their process. Right. So mm -hmm. depending on how much of that is present really will dictate the, that length of time. But you know, it can take anywhere from three to six months, really, just to to handle the transition piece alone, and then start to start to implement some changes to create those um, those systems and those processes. You know, ninety days would be on the short end. Six months is really. I don't like to tinker really too much before that, um, unless there's been a lot of involvement ahead of um, the sale to to get that employee buy in and things. Because the last thing you want to do is upset the apple cart when everything is already running so smooth. Because to your point, like you you made with the prior question, that adds to that, oh my gosh, am I going to lose my job? A new owner, now we're doing everything different. So it's kind of a delicate balance, but at least, you know, at least six months is really kind of the time frame I think that we look at before you've really got your arms around everything and you can start to comfortably be making some significant changes. Exactly. So when you're deciding which businesses to buy, what's the criteria? What are you looking for you you mentioned um you know processes and mm -hmm. and systems yeah so th i mean obviously there's there's any number of factors to look at and all of those things can kind of play into either increasing the value of the business to an investor or decrease it uh, and every investor has a different risk tolerance like once some things that might be uh, an issue for somebody else um, you know, someone with that's not process and system driven, uh, like myself with my background, like that might be a huge risk exposure for them. And they may not like that to me. Uh, no big deal. Like I, I can come in and, and, and iron that stuff out real, real quick. That's not a concern. Um, biggest thing, you know, we start start with is just the big, the big items like, hey, what's the sales revenue? What's the profitability? How many employees do they have? Um, how long have they been in business? And what role does the owner play? Those are the big five criteria I look for right out of the gate. Because um, if they're if the business isn't big enough, they're probably not fit for an acquisition uh, yet. But there might be an opportunity for us to come in, provide some additional uh, board advisory type services to help that owner get ready for exit. Because there's a lot of things that really need to be in place for that owner to to get the the uh, golden parachute kind of payday and right off into the sunset retirement like they all really have been working for. Um, so those, those are the big things. And then after that, it really depends on the individual investor. Like if, if all of those things are good, you know, I, I prefer businesses that have been open at least 10 years because um, the reality is 90% of businesses don't make it past five. And then of those that do, about half of those don't make it to the 10 year mark. So I want like an established kind of mature company that's been through its hiccups and has established themselves in the marketplace. They're not really still in startup mode. Um, and then to the point that we kind of talked about earlier, that that avoiding the dancing bear, because um, I'm not trying to buy myself a job, like that's not the greatest use of my time. Uh, although I can come in and run something very, very well, like that's <laughs> that that's not going to serve that's not going to serve that company or my other companies in the portfolio at, at all. Um, so then you look at things like systems, processes, documentation, like do they have those things in place? Um, is does everybody know? Uh, what the expectations are, you know, is there an is there an employee handbook? Are there job descriptions? Um, is there a formal attendance policy? Is all the legal stuff in order? We don't want to to find out as we're going through due diligence that uh, you know, there's been lots of workplace incidents or they've been sued for harassment or like all this other all this other type stuff. And as you uncover those things, you have to make those as kind of assessment as as you go along. And hey, yes, I can live with this. No, I can't live with that because it's really like buying a used car. Um, you're going to go through it with a fine tooth comb as best as you can, but at the end of the day, you're not the original owner. You get kind of taken on some risk when you buy that used car, whether you buy it from, you know, a private seller down the street, or you buy it from, from a dealership who, who's gone through it and checked it out a little bit. Um, and that analogy, that would kind of be like a, a broker. Um, you're always absorb. You're, you're trying to assess what's my level of risk and what, what am I willing to live with is, is really what it comes down to. And I know a lot of the, um, when people are um, buying businesses, <clears throat> it is for, you know, from people who want to retire, you know, they've mm -hmm. had the business a long time, but um, have you ever come into situations where 
the person has an established business, they have regular revenue, but I mean, their equipment is like so old. I mean, I've seen optometry businesses like that. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they sell it. But man, when the person that comes in, they're going to have to upgrade everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You, you do, you do see that, uh, you know, especially manufacturing, uh, you know, if uh, on the smaller end, if, if the, the business owner's not been savvy with reinvesting some of the profits to maintain, or, you know, they're just patching it together to keep it going. That's, that's not uncommon. And, you know, like you said, you'll see, you'll see that in any industry. Um, and that, that's just something you have to evaluate. Like, Hey, is that, is, you know, what's the useful life of the, of, of the equipment that they got? Are we going to be able to, you know, refurbish that, go get it, to, go get it used at new cost. Like what's, what's the replacement, you know, capital investment required here. And is, is that going to make this uh, or break this deal in terms of its viability? And a lot of times it, a lot of times it can kill the deal um, because we're, you know, I, at least for me, cause I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a fix and flip type investor. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not interested in turnarounds. I, I did that in corporate. I would always fix something and then a year for a year or two and then get moved over and have to fix something else. Like I've, I've done my fair share of cleaning up messes and I really don't want to do it anymore. That's not to say that there's not people out there that don't specialize in that because they are um, just, just for me, that's just, that's just not the sandbox that I, that I want to play in. It's just not attractive to me anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the other thing is again, back to, uh, employees or, you know, managers there. A lot of times when a business has been doing things the same way for a certain time, and they may even have a, a culture where people are complaining often, or, mm -hmm. you know, just let's do the littlest possible. In other words, they're not very productive, mm -hmm. but they've been, it's been acceptable. Right. So right. when you go in, is there a way when you're actually assessing a business to even find out what, what is the culture there? Is it, is there a way to detect the culture? Or do you have to come in and create that new culture that you want? Um, the, it's a little bit of both. Um, cause obviously culture is a huge, is a huge driver of the success of any business. Uh, so you can kind of get a feel for that in the conversations with the owner. Now, yes, like everybody's going to be putting their best foot forward. Like, it's like, Hey, like I'm like getting involved in these conversations. It's, it's like going on your first date. Like everyone, everyone's going to get dressed up. They're going to put their makeup on and they may even be, you know, if, if the, the employees know that the business is up for sale, like they, they may even be told like to, you know, put their best foot forward too. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where it's as much art as it is, as it is science. Like I've got checklists and, and worksheets and all this other stuff that I provide the business owners to, to evaluate the business. And um, a, a lot of those check sheets uh, ask the same questions in different manners uh, and they get it at different stages because that allows me a pulse check to see what is the consistency here. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, I like to walk the business when possible. Um, I have co colleagues that, that do not, I mean, I, my, my, my mentor Roland and, and Matt, like they, they will buy, you know, 10, 15, 20, $30 million businesses and never set foot in the place. Um, but for me, because of, because of what, what aligns for me with my values and stuff, I, I like to go put my eyes on it, uh, because I can see different opportunities. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to smell it. I want to feel it. I want to taste it. I want to touch it kind of deal um, because that culture point is so important, especially with small, small businesses. Like the, the more solid that team is um, to, to begin with the, the lot easier that transition is going to be. Uh, and having been in corporate for a long time and been exposed to lots of personalities and having to manage teams as you know, big as hundreds down to, you know, small uh, members of salary management, I can usually pick up on, on the BS pretty quick. Um, just by walking around, seeing what's the working conditions like, because um, there's always indicators. I'm sure you see it too. Like you can walk into, a, you know, a, an eye doctor's office and if the equipment is well cared for, things are kind of in their place. Like there's a clear pride in workmanship. Like that's usually an indication that, hey, things are going pretty well here. But it, but if things are in disarray and it looks like um, nobody cares, well, okay, that that's worth investigating. So that's, you know, one of the big indicators for me. And then if the opportunity presents itself, just having, having a casual conversation, even if it's not mentioning that, Hey, I'm, I'm here to inspect the business because your, your, your boss is wanting to sell just mm -hmm. coming around and, and, you know, like they just assume I'm a vendor or a potential customer, just having that conversation and, and asking, you know, some basic, you know, get to know you type questions can be an indicator too. And that's where, um, you know, the sales background and all that other stuff that I've been doing the last few years is 
certainly comes into play too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it really helps you get into rapport with people. Mm -hmm. That's right. for sure. So, um, so you have all this business background. Why don't you just start businesses from scratch? <laughs> you, I, I've done that before and I know it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So been there, done that. Uh, and and uh, been there and done that, got the t-shirt and then didn't learn my lesson. And so I went and helped another company who was a startup do that with some other companies, the, the, the sales company. It, it's a grind. I mean, it really, really is. It is absolutely not for the faint of heart. Uh, and I even alluded to the statistics earlier. You know, the 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 reality is 90 plus percent of businesses overall um, are going to fail in the first five to 10 years. Um, so it's 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 not for the faint of heart. You cannot you cannot be weak. Um, it's the startup game really is about who can endure pain the longest. And it's, it's going to be a good way to be, put it. Yeah. So it's true. Be, and that's, that's the game of business in general. Uh -huh. um, Cause it just, cause you get past that 10 year mark, there's, there's always going to be another challenge. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had that experience. It's just, it, it's, it's not something that I want to continue to invest my time in it, because doing so, although I can do it and be successful, you know, COVID aside, um, that, that killed, killed my insurance business and, you know, some of the other businesses I was involved in, um, you know, there's always opportunities to to start something new, but at the same time, the re the the real reality is we're living through the the single largest transfer of wealth in human history right now. I mean, over the next ten years, just in the United States alone, we're looking at about a ten trillion dollar transfer of assets of small business assets. Um, about ten to twelve million baby boomers are going to retire. Um, the youngest of them are are reaching retirement age now, and over the next five years or so, they're holding about $7 trillion uh, of those assets and they have nowhere to go with them. Their family does, you know, their, their family doesn't want them. They, they don't have an exit plan. Um, so the, and, and the, the investment community is so small that unfortunately uh, of those, uh, gosh, probably 12 million or so businesses, um, 70, 75% are going to go to the graveyard. Because, because nothing's in place. Um, and so why do acquisitions more than anything that that's why, because yeah, I can go spend some money, go do startups, like go hire people. And, and, you know, I've learned my lessons along the way to not make, make the same mistakes, but ultimately the opportunity to contribute and give back is, is in the mergers and acquisition spaces, especially over the next 10 years. Um, Cause the reality of, of the wider M&A market is, you know, 20% or so of businesses are going to go, are, are only going to get sold. The other 80 don't get sold. Um, and that's to the tune of, I think there's about two and a half million businesses for sale at any given time on, on a year. So you're talking 400, 450,000 of those are the ones that get sold and the rest don't. So that leaves an owner in a tough position. Do I continue working longer than I promised my significant other? Do I, you know, do I continue to jeopardize my health because I'm working so many hours trying to keep the doors open or do I close the doors? And, you know, the people that have, you know, Susie at the front desk, who's been with me for 25 years and, you know, Timmy in the back, like, you know, let these people down and they're not going to have any place to go. Um, so for me, more than anything, that's why acquisitions versus startups um, there, there's a lot of opportunity to, to keep the, the economic engine going and give people the opportunities that they're working hard for. I have kind of a double question. <laughs> the first is, um, how do you find these businesses? Mm -hmm. And if you are one of these businesses, because a lot of people ju just don't know what they don't know, mm -hmm. how can you raise your hand and say, hey, I would like someone to come and purchase right. me, but you know, not, not like you said, pull me into pieces. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's the, you know, there's the traditional route, just like you would sell a house, right? There's an on-market listing. So there's, you know, websites that um, will list both on-market, off-market listings. There's bizbuy, you know, dot, there's bizbuy.com. There, I mean, there's all kinds of that out there. Uh, and much like in real estate, you can go get a broker. You can go get an agent who will kind of assess you, assess the process that you have, look at the business, put a value on it. And then, you know, you're signing a contractual agreement for however long that broker's contract is for, for them to sell the business. And, you know, they're going to get a cut of that. Um, 
And much like any other service provider, both on the sell side and on the buy side, on my side of the table, there's there's good and bad things about that. Like any other service that that you go out and, and invest in. Like if you've ever been to a restaurant, like we've all had good service at a restaurant. We've all had bad service at a restaurant. We've all had a good experience at a car dealership. We've all had bad experiences at a car dealership. So it's, it's hit and miss. Um, as far as off-market listings, there's a massive amount of resources that people can use. Um, you know, outside of your personal network, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you can connect with like financial planners, attorneys, um, anybody like that, that works with high net worth individuals that, you know, they're, they, they have to inevitably have CPAs, accountants, like all these other professional services. Those individuals can be great sources of, of finding that information, um, you know, social media, LinkedIn is a great source. Um, a, a lot of small businesses now, uh, more so than ever, you know, do have some sort of social media presence, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or, uh, you know, any of those. That's one trade shows. Uh, and then there's just the good old fashioned, um, you know, data mining, right? You can go out and, and pay for a service like Seamless AI or Zoom Info or all that, that scrape that data. And then you're doing cold email campaigns and, and calling and outreach and stuff, which is a lot of a lot of what we do and have success at just because, uh, you know, with the sales background, like that's that's easy to do. Just give me give me the numbers and the emails and I'll, I'll start calling. Um, and even though that sounds intimidating for someone that may want to get in the space if they've never had you know, that outbound, you know, cold emailing or calling experience, you would be surprised how receptive people are um, when they pick up the phone and, and you and tell them, hey, you know, I, I'm an investor. Your business came up in my team's research. I was just calling to reach out, see if you might be interested in selling your business for a fair price. Like it's really pretty much that straightforward. Um, I, I, I've had people in tears um, on calls realizing, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you're the light that I need to walk to. Like I've heard that on a call. Like I knew them. I knew the minute I saw your email that that you were my savior. And well, no, I'm not necessarily your savior. Let's let's not put me up there yet. But I mean, because business owners, especially the ones that are looking to get out, like they don't know what to do. Um, Eighty plus percent of, of business owners don't have an exit plan. Um, so just reaching out, mailers, believe it or not, I've got some colleagues that absolutely love doing doing postal mailers, just, you know, one sheet, old school, Dan Kennedy type, you know, type mailer type stuff. Um, I mean, so there's any number of things you can do to find those. those. Um, and if you're an owner, obviously, you know, you can go through a broker, but um, I, I would say, look, go to trade show events, uh, you know, ask, start asking around, ask your wealth advisor, ask your accountant, your attorney, hey, do you know what, you know, do you know any private invest, strategic private investors? Um, and be very specific, like tell them, like, I'm not necessarily wanting to sell to private equity. You know, I'm looking for an individual or what would be known in, in the space as like a strategic buyer. That's who really that you're looking for. Or hop on LinkedIn. Um, there's plenty There's plenty of us on there. And it, we're very, very obvious. Uh, if you look at our profiles, it'll be in the headline. It, it'll be on our pages that, hey, that, like, this is who we are. This is what we do. And just send a message like, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I think I want to sell in the next few years. Would you mind having a conversation? I get probably one or two messages a week on LinkedIn alone um, from owners reaching out. And, you know, sometimes I, sometimes we can help. Sometimes we can't, but at the end of the day, like you're going to have, at least if you reach out to me, you're going to have a clear plan on, Hey, yes, you can, you, I can help you now. Hey, no, I can help you in six months and, or, Hey, these are the things you need to do and have in place before you really are ready to exit. And if you want help doing that, that's something that I, that my team and I can help with too. Got it. So this is probably a loaded question. Oh, I but like how do, how do people know what their business is worth? I know there's like, business, <laughs> what do you call them? Evaluators, evaluators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, uh, there's as much art as there is to science to that. Now there are great resources out there. Um, it, it's much like the real estate market. It's based on the, you know, the, the people that publish the reports, the industry multiples is what it's known as. Um, look at what what businesses in that category are trending at selling over the last few years as a multiple of uh, profit. The difference is in where people get a, a people start getting a, a little bit off the rocker that results in what I would call the ugly baby conversation when they start talking with the strategic investor um, is because they've overvalued their business or the broker's overpromised. Um, because if you're an owner operator, meaning meaning you're integral to the day to day business, and this takes some honest self-evaluation. Uh, I, I kind of qualify that as not, can you take a couple weeks off and everything's fine? Can you take off six months? Can you take off six months or more? 
and the business at least maintain, if not grow. If you can do that, you're probably definitely not an owner-operated business because when you're owner-operated, the multiples that you that apply to your business are lower, and it's called seller discretionary earnings versus the big phrase that everyone throws around, which is EBITDA. Um, EBITDA multiples are higher, but those are for professionally managed businesses. So like you've got accounting and bookkeeping in place. You've got a leadership team in place. Like you're really at best working on the business. Like you might be involved a little bit here and there to troubleshoot or, or whatever, but like you can take a month or two off. John, who's been with you for 15 years, he's the shop manager or the, or the clinic manager. Like he knows how to run it. You're just there in and out a few hours a week. That's where you step into EBITDA. And the difference of that can be can be three, four, five times profit difference for the same t- for the same uh, net profit of the business just by it being professionally managed. Um, so if anything, you know, you can Google those resources and you're going to want to look for seller discretionary earnings if you're owner operated. But uh, my colleagues and I, like we give professional business valuations all the time. Um, now it's not going to be like the full, like, I mean, I've got one right here from, from a, from one, I mean, I mean, we're several pages thick here. Um, but you know, something like that, a full report like that, where they do market analysis and all that is, you know, 15, 20, $30,000. Um, but we can come in and provide you, you know, a, a, a general, a general overview of, Hey, here, here's the things that are influencing the valuation. Here's the things that are are good about it. Here's the things that we don't like and, and give you a range based on the data that we find about the business. And that's something that you can take to, you know, take to the proverbial bank when it comes to actually listing your business and say, Hey, this, this is the range I know my business is worth. And it be based in reality, not some big, you know, upcharge multiple that some, some brokers will, will put on a business. We, I've, I've had that a, a few times just in the last month alone where, you know, we've come in at half of the asking price. Um, and that's a, that's a difficult conversation for, for an owner to hear who's been in it, you know, 20, 30 years, they started it and, you know, they were expecting this four or five, $6 million payday on the asking price. And we're coming in with like one and a half or 2 million and having to explain why. Um, and, it, you know, it, it puts us on the back foot as being the bearer of bad news, but at the same time, those, those expectations have to be realigned. Otherwise the businesses don't sell and, and they won't because unless someone's willing to come in and be that owner operator, which a lot, most of the time that's where, where it happens is it's, it's an owner operator type role where the broker, th- where the broker is kind of overestimating that um, unless someone's willing to come in and buy the job, like it's, it's just not, it's just not sellable at that price. Um, and so we always tell them like, Hey, if, you know, you can get 5 million or you can get 6 million for it. Like, you know, by all means go get it. But it, you know, if, if not in six months or a year, if you haven't, haven't successfully sold it and you want to revisit this conversation, reach back out. We'll be happy to take a look. So when you um, go into these businesses and let's say they don't have an exit plan. So mm-hmm. these people want to leave. So you, uh, you know, you advise them, how do you advise them? How do they get ready for an exit? So maybe a year later or so they could actually sell their business. Yeah. So in an, in an ideal situation, you want to start that exit planning as far ahead of time as possible. Um, 12 months is doable. In reality, that's very quick. Typically, I li- I recommend two to three years of planning because there's there's kind of this 18-step process you really need to go through to make sure you've checked all the boxes. And the first thing is, is making sure we're able to get you off the org chart. Like where where you're not working in the business, you're you're really barely even working on the business, and that's probably the first thing I take everybody through when I start to have those conversations. Is this concept of the five exits of an entrepreneur, um, because a because the the role you play in the business is not always indicative of the size of the company. Like I mean, right now we're we're negotiating um, an offer on a company that um, that's doing about. I, they're on pace to do about 30 million this year in top line and about three or 4 million net profit in EBITDA. But the three owners are working 40 hours a week. Like that's an eight figure business where they are still in the business as an employee. So we got to move that, you know, we're going to acquire that. That's going to be a, you know, a pretty significant, uh, significant endeavor. And there can be a long-term commit transition commitment on their part. But that's the first thing is move you from the doer to the delegator. 
get you off the front line, get you, you know, not changing, not, not cleaning the bathrooms or, you know, uh, taking orders at the counter and all that kind of stuff, at least get you in a position where you're delegating. You've got management staff in place, um, get you to that level. Th that's going to take some time because there's, there's systems that has to be put in place. There may be hiring that has to be put in place. Um, and then the next phase to get you from, from kind of delegating to leading and having you exit the staff, like that's where the, that's where the real work starts to come in because there is hiring involved. Um, and, you know, you've been in, uh, you know, you've been in leadership and, and in offices stuff for, for a number of years, you understand the importance, like, hey, one bad leadership hire can really tank a small business because it, it can affect the culture in the office, the performance overall. Um, so ultimately, we've got to get that in place first and then get you from from leading to governing, get you from working on the business to working above the business to, you know, it's three, four hours a week, maybe. And, and you're just you're having a meeting with the key leadership uh, and moving on down the road, doing, you know, going golfing or whatever it is that you're doing. You may still be in there because you want to be, but the business continues to grow. You're you're looking at everything from like 30,000 foot and be like, hey, this is the direction we need to th this is the direction we need to row. I'm not going to tell you guys the path to get there. We just need to go this way and then let them go do the thing. Um, and then ultimately, you know, that that's where you're, you're governing. You're almost in a board type position and, but you're very certainly off the org chart. That's, that's the biggest part of that two to three year process is moving, depending on where you're at. And just those three components alone is at least getting you completely off the org chart to where you're just governing the business. You're working above it, keeping track of the numbers, you know, a weekly meeting or bi-monthly meeting, something like that, which is kind of the, the playground that, that me and my colleagues play in. Um, you know, my, my mentor Roland, when he gets involved, when he gets involved in deals, his commitment uh, is like a, a board meeting once a quarter. And that's all the more, that's all the more that he's involved. So, you know, th again, that takes a lot of work to get to that point. Um, but that's, we at least got to get you off the org chart um, to where you're not integral to business to really get you that value um, and exit number of the business. Cause that could be the difference between um, a two multiple on, on, on like, say, let's say you, you've got, you're, you're netting 300,000. So on a two multiple, that's going to be, you know, a $600,000 uh, business transaction for you. Nice little payday. But if we get you professionalized, get you completely off the org chart, that could be, depending on the industry, that could be a four or five or a six multiple. So that, that 300,000 now suddenly becomes 1. 1.5, 1.6 million. So it's it's a huge differentiator when you want to sell to a strategic investor. So um, I want to talk about like social impact. I mm -hmm. know you are very mission driven and, you know, what you do is with love and integrity, because I've known you long enough to know that. So when people are looking for businesses or when your company's looking for businesses, how do you kind of marry the impact you want to have in the business kind of businesses you choose? It's a really good question. So you really have to have that clarity about what's important to you first, because if you don't have that clarity about what you stand for, what's important to you and why, it's going to be difficult to delineate that and find that in any business that you go look at. And I find more often than not, a lot of people don't really have that level of clarity. You, you may not necessarily have clarity to the level of you've got a very specific and defined mission. Um, but you at least need to know who I am, what I what I stand for, and how am I how how am I able to live those and and deliver value in the marketplace through a specific business that represents that right so to give an example that everyone will kind of understand because we've we've talked about my portfolio like i'm focused on businesses in the heartland which for the most part is you take a i define that as you could take like a 300 or 500 mile radius around nashville tennessee so in that circle like that's america's heartland that's a very that's a very geographically specific type of, of individual in the United States. There, there's a, there's a, its own culture in this part of the country where you're, you're looking at, you know, very specific American values, very specific belief systems overall. Um, the only exception to that is Illinois because it's very, it's very much a different cl uh, climate because that is driven by policies and things like that in Chicago and not to get off on the political spectrum, but that's something you got to consider as well. Like there are, there are states that are not very conducive to business um, to business environments and why you see places like California and New York having like this mass exodus, because at the end of the day, political decisions at the state and the federal level do significantly impact businesses. And if you don't believe that, 
I'd ask you what rock you've been living under because you must have slept through COVID. <laughs> um, you know, so that's that's the first thing is, hey, who am I? What do I stand for? And what what industry do I have expertise in that aligns with that? Right. So for me, like, hey, good old hard work and American values. That's manufacturing. If you're going to be in manufacturing, who else has good hard work in American values? Logistics and truckers like we got to be able to move this equipment around. Um and then home services construction, that's trade, that's trade skills. Like all of those things are the things that for me, when you study the, the history and, and the growth and progression of America as a, as a country, made America what it has become today, post-World post War II through the Industrial Revolution. And we have gotten very, very far away from focusing on those things. We've pushed academia to, to the level of a fault. Um, and, and we've kind of shunned all these other these dirty jobs and uh, and working with your hands like there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of that um you know great things are built by builders and if you don't focus on builders and give them an opportunity to build well what is there there's nothing uh, you know the great carl sagan in the 90s has a, a very prophetic quote and i'm not even going to attempt to quote all of it because it's kind of long and i don't want to butcher it um, but he alluded to the fact that he was deeply concerned that sometime in his children or his grandchildren's lifetime that America would become a information and service based economy and will have gotten away from manufacturing and, and trade and, and, cre and true creation. Um, and for people that don't know who Carl Sagan is, like, man was ahead of his time, world renowned uh, astrophysicist. And, uh, you know, he, 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 he contributed a lot uh, to the, to the science industry and, and what, um, what America has become just because of the work that he was doing with physics and things like that. But, um, you know, he saw the right on the wall years ago. Um, so for me, that's, that's how I've been able to determine that's because, Hey, I'm very, very clear about who I am. I'm unapologetic about it. Um, for any of you out there that, you know, follow me, uh, at all, you'll see that for those of you that don't, you know, find me on Facebook, find me on LinkedIn, you'll figure out very, very quickly whether or not I, I'm your cup of tea or not. And if I'm not, that's okay. Um, I, I know that, but I'm, but I'm unapologetically in alignment with those things because history shows what, what it takes to be successful as a society. And it's not just here in the United States. It's, it's, it's worldwide. You can study that across multiple cultures, across multiple periods of history, which I've spent you know, a good decade of my adult life really, really diving into to understand that as I'm making these, you know, multi-million dollar decisions, because effectively, like, I, you know, I just turned 40, I'm staking the, the rest of my life and investing the last 40 years that I have, hopefully, or or more um, on this one thing. And I may be wrong, but I'm, I'm not in doubt. I'm never in doubt about it um, because I've put in the time and the work to have that clarity in my, hey, this is the way that I'm going and I'm going to take as many people along with me. So yeah. you've got to get to that level of clarity. So, and um, talk about um, what I was saying in your bio about the entrepreneurship and innovation centers. Mm -hmm. Is that part of your mission? And tell me about that. Yeah. So ultimately that's, that's been a, a, a progression of vision over time. We kind of talked about that before, um, you know, things don't happen overnight your success, your career, your family, your life, even your vision. And for uh, the last few years, that had kind of been like my driving why. And I, over the last year or so, I've really come to understand that that isn't necessarily my why. That's the vehicle. That's the next guy. I thought, I thought the, the M&A, the portfolio was the vehicle to go do that. Well, no, it's, it's the small vehicle to get the bigger vehicle for, for the bigger why. But the entrepreneurship and innovation centers down there in Williamson County, which is just outside of, of Nashville, Tennessee, um, the, the easiest way to explain it, and I'm going to um, date myself a little bit because these programs are not popular in schools anymore. Um, I grew up with shop class. Like that was a normal part of the middle school and educational curriculum, whether it was whether it was woodworking or whether it was like actual metal shop, auto body, like trade skills. Like that was part of the curriculum that you could you could pick. Uh, and some schools that were very um, supportive of that even had those facilities outside of the the actual ca school campus. Uh, and you were you know you were there half the day or whatever it is. The EIC that they put together down there in Williamson County is shop class. It's trade school but for kids that want to be entrepreneurs. If I'd have had that when I was in school, Kimberly, we probably wouldn't be talking today. Like I would be 15 or 20 years down the road. Um, mm -hmm. These kids are, are 
walking away with just a, an incredible opportunity. There are there are some faculty involved um, from the school system because it's it's for high school credit, but outside of the, that for over academic oversight, the entire thing is supported by by businesses in the local community. Successful business owners come in, volunteer their time. They help these kids write business plans. Um, there was a great, the, the executive director just had a great interview a couple weeks ago on somebody's podcast. I can't remember who it is. Like he was telling the story about this, this marketing problem they solved for the Tennessee Titans. Like you imagine being in high school and solving a, t a marketing problem for the Tennessee Titans. Amazing. Like it's crazy. <laughs> um, but these, these kids are walking away with, with business plans, with clarity of understanding. Yes, I want to start a business or no, I don't. Um, some of them are, are walking away with functioning six and seven figure run rate businesses, but probably the most important thing they're walking away with is they're walking away with a Rolodex, connections, resources, people they can pick up the phone and, and call to get the support that they need. Because at the end of the day, business is a team sport. It is absolutely a team sport. Nobody, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, like you name, name anybody, go back in time, Carnegie, uh, any of them. They had people around them that helped them get to where they're at. And the community is so self-aware in that regard that we can't help but help each other out. Those business owners are more than going to be more than happy to, to invest some time in that kid when they go to college or when they go start the thing, as long as you're putting forth the effort. So having that Rolodex out of a high school, just I can't even wrap my head around that. Like it's taken me over a decade to have the contacts that I have now. Mm -hmm. These kids are getting, are able to start building those up in a two, two and a half year time span while they're in high school. It's just unbelievable. Um, when I saw that, because we uh, were looking at moving down there um, <laughs> right before the pandemic happened and then things went sideways and we didn't, I was like, that's the thing. Like I always knew, like I wanted, I, I'd want to do something like that, but I didn't know what it was. It was just this intangible out in the ether type thing. Uh, and then we were looking at schools down there and that happened to be the school district. And I was like, oh my God, that's the thing. Like, here's my proof of concept. Like I, I, I have to do this. Um, so that immediately became the why. And now I understand that really it's, that's not the why that's just the vehicle. Because if we don't in the United States specifically start focusing on investing in our youth, in a way that it, it they're actually delivering value to the marketplace, not giving them equal opportunity to higher education because degrees in philosophy and, and women's study, like all this other stuff, like it doesn't translate. It doesn't translate. It's valuable knowledge, but there's no reason to go wrap yourself up in six figures of debt to go get a lot of these degrees that are pushed because there's no translatable skill in the marketplace in the United States. So we have got to start reinvesting in our youth and start thinking beyond two and four year election cycles. We've got to start thinking generationally. And the only way to do that is to get these kids indoctrinated in something that's of value and, and worthwhile at an early age. When you're still in high school, you're still very moldable and still very impressionable. So to get the tools in, in, from a real world standpoint, not what you're going to go learn in an MBA program in a vacuum. I've audited some. They're great, but... I didn't learn anything exceptional that I didn't already know from being in business for 10 or 15 years, like to, to be able to give children that runway. And then knowing that, Hey, if we do this at the secondary level, we can start, we can start creating a feeder system, just like we do with sport. Like we're great about sports and all this other stuff, like great high school football programs. What do they have? Well, they have a middle school football program and they have an elementary peewee school football. Like <laughs> we, we can build that. We just need people that are focused on it and understand the importance of that. That's one thing that um, the the Eastern culture, the Far Eastern cultures, understand a great deal. When you look at when you look at China or you look at Japan, like they create fifty and hundred year plans and have for centuries. I don't think we've really ever done that much at all since probably the the early eighteen hundreds. You know, obviously with the founders and the founding of the country, but like as things have progressed, like we've gotten so short sighted. Um, we're kind of seeing what happens when, when you do that. Um, so for me, that's why something like the EIC is so important. And yeah, I, my goal is to put one on every single school campus all over the world, but first starting in the United States, first starting in the heartland. And I've got, you know, 
more on my plate than I'll ever be able to do. Like putting one in every school campus in the United States is a big enough goal. But hey, Bill Gates wanted to put a PC in every home back in the 70s and people thought he was out of his mind. And well, there's four in my house. I don't know about you or any of your viewers, right. but like <laughs> not not to mention these things that we all carry mm -hmm. around, right? Um, you know, Elon Musk wants, wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. Um, so for me, like, hey, I, I want to... I want to give back to the, the country that has afforded all of us these amazing opportunities that is still the beacon of ultimate creativity that can unlock the human spirit like has really never been done throughout human history and try to protect her as best I can by investing back in that and, and to, to kind of play off of Elon Musk. Like he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. Well, I, I want us to go to Mars because we can, not because we have to. Mm -hmm. Musk wants to go there because he's concerned that we're going to have to because we're destroying Earth. And like, yeah, we are. But that's because our focus is wrong. Like, let's go there because we can, not because not because we've we've turned <laughs> turned Earth into a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love your passion. And that is so exciting and, and, and so valid. I mean, you know people complain often over the last few years about the school system is broken because, you know, do we really need eight years of English? Yes, mm -hmm. we have to be able to communicate. But what if you took one of those English classes and had an entrepreneurial class mm -hmm. or a class on reading a business plan or right. how to put something. Or basic financial literacy. Yes. Like granted, a lot of this stuff should be taught at home. Like I, I I'm not going to, I'm not going to completely bash the school system. Like the school system has become what it's become because we as parents, we as citizens have allowed it. Like we've abdicated and delegated our responsibility and ownership. But my goodness, just some basic financial literacy, understanding the difference between an asset and a liability, how to create a budget and what that actually, and a budget that actually works and functions and not just, oh, well, I've got this much, I, I make this much and this is what my bills are. That's not a budget. <laughs> like that's not that's barely a balance sheet but like really understanding what what your what it means to manage your cash flow and to to create specific buckets uh, of expenses and knowing what bucket should be what size and what percentage like we don't we don't teach any of that and that has gone on for generation and generation and generation that's why you see generational poverty well of, of course we have that it's not because the people aren't educated or able or willing to, to break out of it. They don't know how, because they were never like, if your parents don't know something, your teachers don't know something, they can't teach you. Right. Like th that's just what it is. So, you know, we need that to your point. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm enjoying our conversation and, um, but we're getting close to the end here. So first of all, I'd like people to find out, you know, where can they connect with you? Where's the best place? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Facebook. You can just search my name. Uh, I've got a personal and a business profile. I'm on LinkedIn. I, I'm much more active on LinkedIn. You can search my name on there if you um, add "Life is Better with Family" um, on LinkedIn, like .com or whatever. You'll find me there. Um, I've got a website, exitmybiz.org. That's um, got a it's like a quick little one pager. There's an explainer video in there that'll help you kind of understand, you know, how we work with companies, especially if you're wanting to exit um, now or you're potentially planning. There's a short little video that'll kind of walk you through how we work th work through that process. But Facebook, LinkedIn are the two biggest ones that that, that I'm on um, and, and put out a lot of content. So if you want to, especially if you're a small business owner and you're wanting to to grow your network. Um, you know, definitely connect with me. You know, I've got, I don't have a huge following on both. I think between both platforms, I've got maybe 17,000 followers. The bulk of those are, are on LinkedIn, but I put out a lot of content. Um, I've got a lot of great people in my network and, uh, you know, all of them are, are, you know, actively engaging in it. And that's going to be an opportunity for you to build it because at the end of the day, you know, your success is going to be def defined by who you surround yourself with. And as a small business owner, that is more important now than ever. Get get four or five, six people around you that are on the same mission, maybe not even the same industry, um, but they're on the same mission. They understand where you're going and they're going to hold you accountable to that. Don't surround yourself with a bunch of people that are going to tell you what you want to hear. That's the that's the, the the most deadly decision a business owner can ever make is to surround themselves with people that are going to tell them yes. You're going to want a few of those. I'm not I'm, I'm not degrading the value of people like that because uh, you need your your you know your, your cheerleaders but you need a few people that are going to be like hey like that's that's not good that's stupid like you need someone that's really good, willing to kind of proverbially slap you around a little bit 
and, and give you a gut check and be like, that's a really bad idea. And this is why. Mm-hmm. Um, you need those people that are going to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing yeah. all your wisdom on business and life. And it's just wonderful to reconnect with you. Yes, absolutely. It was great to be on. I appreciate you reaching out and saying, Hey, let's, let's chat again. And then, Hey, here we are. So <laughs> it's always good to, always good to come on and, and have a chat. Yeah. And to end, I always end with this question. What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life? Um, whatever the thing is for you, do it now. Because that's all the more time you got. You know, I'm not very old. I just turned 40 uh, in, in this past July. And my, I, uh, my best friend, my brother, who's, you know, probably closer with him I had a closer relation with him than, than most men are ever blessed to have in their life. Like we met in college, um, went through Masonic lodge together. We got knighted as nice simpler together, started some businesses, some nonprofits, um, last August, 39 years old, fell asleep on a couch after work, didn't wake up. Um, that was a huge wake up call for me. Uh, I thought I was motivated before, but like whatever that thing is that you want to do, do it now. The only thing holding you back is you, is your fear of doing it and everything, everything, that incredible life that you want to have, it lies outside your comfort zone. It's going to be uncomfortable to go after it, but go do it. Thank you so much, Brandon. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Yep. See ya.